Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. I'm James. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Like prepping for the apocalypse or something like that? I've never prepped for anything in my life. So the apocalypse will just be yet another thing that hits me when I'm unprepared for it. I mean, do you have like any like canned goods that you have like secreted away? God, no. God, no, I cannot tell you, you know, I've never bought a, I've, I haven't been to the grocery store since I, since Betsy moved in with me 20 years ago. So, uh, what? I've, uh, Wait, who does your grocery shopping? Betsy. Why not you? Wait, she has a nine to five. Why would you, like, I do all the grocery shopping and cooking. You do? No, yeah. I don't do a, I don't, I have, I have not cooked a, so much as a pea. And I have not grocery shopped so much as AP since Betsy moved in 20 years ago. Okay, hold on. Do you, have you ever changed a diaper? Yes, I change lots of diapers. I do all of the laundry. Uh-huh. I do all of the dishwashing. Uh-huh. I do all the cleaning in the house. Uh-huh. But yeah, no, I, I hate grocery stores. At one point, Betsy asked me, oh, can you swing by the grocery store and pick up some spaghetti sauce? And I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't sound that hard. I'll go, you know, I'll enter one of these grocery stores, which I hate so much, and I'll try to get some spaghetti sauce. And I go and I find there's a spaghetti sauce aisle, which has at least 50 different types of spaghetti sauce. And I call Betsy and I'm like, what's going on? Like, what do you mean get spaghetti sauce? There's 50 different types of spaghetti sauce here. And she's like, oh, just get the normal kind. And I'm like, normal kind? There is no normal kind. Not one of these things says spaghetti sauce. It's always garlic spaghetti sauce or cheese spaghetti sauce or herb spaghetti sauce. There's not a single one of these. It just says spaghetti sauce on it. And I You are like a baby. You are baby. You are a baby. I freaked out. I did not like that. (laughs) it's uh um you want to be like this is why you love like uh the soviet union so much because you just want to go to like a store in which there is something is a white label and black block letters that says spaghetti sauce exactly is that so much to ask (laughs) You, you are afraid of the bounties of capitalism i am all right. So uh, today is my uh, parents' anniversary. Uh, uh, good for them. Are they are they both still alive? Or are they both still going strong? They're, they're both still alive. I mean, I figure since we're going to talk about cults today, figure we uh-huh. should talk about like the the cult that we all start in our families. T- today's episode is about cults, by the way, everybody. And so I wanted to talk about like the very first cult I was a part of, which is in my family. And um, my dad put on his wall on Facebook a, a very nice black and white picture of their wedding day. Uh, you know, low so many years ago, like 50 odd years ago. And everybody was just writing down the various like anodyne things that you write, like, oh, such a cute couple, whatever. And so I wrote down, they have no idea what's about to hit them. Yeah. And that was that, and it's a, you know, funny little Facebook. And then literally within three minutes, I get a, a panicked call from my mother. Going, <laughs> Jamie, Jamie, please, please delete that comment. But my, my friends, they don't know your sense of humor, Jamie. Jamie, please, please, <laughs> Jamie, please delete that comment. Please, please, I, I'm begging you. Please, I, I can't talk right now, Jamie. I, I, I gotta go. Please, please delete it. It's so like, all right. I'm sorry. I, should I be calling you Jamie? No, Have I been calling you no. by the wrong name this whole time? No, I was called Jamie up until like I was about 12, and then I switched to schools, and, or I guess 13 or 14. So when I started going to high school, uh, it was a new school where nobody knew me, and I, I hated the name Jamie. Always hated it. Always hated it. So I didn't want to be Jim because that was my dad's name. And so I, uh, James, James, it sounds artistic and aristocratic. 
Um, so James. So yeah, but my parents still call me. So are you a junior? Are you James Kennedy Jr.? I'm the third. You're the third? Oh, yeah. Betsy, we were talking about this today, and she said she thought she knew somebody who was a third. It's you. You're a third. I had no idea you were James Kennedy the third. You kind of put that on your novels, man. No, that's so, yeah, so dumb. James Gerald Kennedy the third. Um, and uh, and the, actually, uh, I'm James Kennedy the fourth because it was James Havelock Kennedy before that, which is so <laughs> much awesome. cooler than that Gerald. so much cooler. Havelock. Um, and if you go, I, I, yeah, so, uh, a- anyway, so Jamie, Jamie, please. Oh, she, she sounds like Morty when she gets like this Rick and Morty. <laughs> like, please delete it. I was like, okay, I deleted the comment. Then five minutes later after that, Jamie, I can't see the post anymore. Did you delete the post? <laughs> like, I can't delete the post. I'm, I, I like, it's, it's my, it's dad's post. Like, Jamie, I can't see it anymore. It's not on my wall. J- Jamie, bring it back. Bring back the post. It's my wedding day, Jamie. I like. I it's like, my friends can't see it. I don't think my friends can see it. I said. I said. I see it. I just navigated to Dad's page, and I clicked on it, and, and there it is. Here, I'll send you a link to it. I can't see it. I can't see it. And so then I I gotta go. And so I go. Okay, I'm just gonna go, Jamie. And then a couple minutes later, my dad calls. Uh, Jamie. Uh, Jim. Jim, tell him that he took it off my page. <laughs> Uh, or I, I just want to see if, and my dad is like a very reasonable, level-headed guy. And he's like, uh, let's see if we can, you know, work through this thing together. Um, now what do I click on right now? Okay. <laughs> Jim, nobody can say it. So yeah, great. So that's, that's where I take that and add Catholicism to it. And that's where I'm coming from. But today you put up, you put something on Facebook today. You also commented on my Facebook post today and uh-huh. got a complaint from me. So you are just getting constant <laughs> complaints from your Facebook comments. I don't think you realize how much offense you're giving. I had said that, you know, I am not immune to the sentiments of this week. And I said, I put up a Facebook post that said, I'll read it for you. You wrote, at dinner, we read the kids the full list of executive orders and explained each one. That's what I wrote. I wrote that on Facebook. Yeah. My per- patriotic perform- moment. Performative performative i'm what does performative even mean i mean you mean like put it on facebook uh, you know you're, you're you're performing your wokeness on facebook how is that woke <laughs> you're, you're performing like what a great father you are you know uh, <laughs> so i wrote I, I, so I, I wrote seems low energy we grill our daughters on specifics of maritime law at breakfast and energy policy at lunch we mostly save dinner for technical issues and cybersecurity, but you do you i guess it sounds cute um, yes. And then, and then our my, friend Alex wrote, OMG, this killed me. Um, I thought about then responding to you on Facebook, but I decided, no, people don't want to see me bicker with James Kennedy on Facebook. However, when then you mentioned it in a text, I then texted you back and I pointed out that there had been two comments complaining about my do you parenting. Want me, do you want me to read the, the, yes. the stream? Uh, so uh, you write, are we on for tonight? Our wives will be out partying at the bars with their new shots. Both of our wives are librarians, so they got the vaccination. But we can keep an eye on our kids and still record, right? I write, yup. Nine o'clock, you write back, yup, sounds great. I write, I figure if you start reading the Federalist Papers to your kids at six, you should be able to get quite a lot covered by them. And then you write back, you and my mother criticized my parenting. It would be very hard to remove my mother from my life. Very, dun, dun, dun. very, very, very crafted. He like worked for an hour on that. And so I wrote, you're confusing criticism for the other thing. And you write back, enlighten me. 
And I write back, <laughs> friendly mockery. Jesus, what is wrong with people? And now that Trump is gone, like we can't be dicks anymore? Like, just- no. <laughs> I tried putting something genuinely patriotic on Facebook. And of course, of course, you tear it down. That's all you people can do. Um, <laughs> you people. Well, this is why I don't post. I, yes. I remember when I told your your wife, your lovely wife, Betsy, about the Kennedy Iron Triangle of online success, never post, never tweet, never comment. She said, that is a very good idea for you. And um, <laughs> <laughs> Keywords there being for you. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe she's right. But I, I'm going to have a book coming out this September. Hey, and, we're finally announcing that, are we? I mean, uh, the official announcement isn't out yet, but yeah, I have a book coming out this September. Uh, it's Yay. on it's on Quirk, uh, which is uh, they, they're the people who did uh, uh, what's that, uh, the the uh, Miss Something's Home for Peculiar Children. <laughs> you really should know your stablemates, Miss <laughs> Peregrine's Home for yeah, yeah, yeah. What oh, is on. it? Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. I'm sorry, but the other day I'm losing my mind. Heather and I were like. Who played Frodo Baggins? And neither <laughs> of us could figure out to say Elijah Wood. We had to look it up. So I'm losing my mind. Uh, uh, so if I don't remember, I, I got everything right about that title except for the name Peregrine. So I'm fine. And they also did, you know, uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and all those books. So uh, yeah. I love them. They're they're great. Uh, I, I love Quirk. My editor is great. Um, the, it looks like they're really going to do some real publicity for it. Uh, my great. agent is great. I'm very happy. It's called Dare to Know. Um, oh, a, you've got a new title. We do have a new title. It was originally called "You Know My Name." Look up the number, and that got shot down. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, it's an eight-word title, James. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, th- I mean, uh, been so down looks like up to me. There are a lot of like good long titles, right? You you were making this case maybe before you were fi- you were fighting for the title because I read this novel twice, and uh, while you were developing it, and you. You were always trying the case like, oh, here's this other long title. Here's this other long title. And I was like, six words, seven words, five words. Like you you literally, even in citing, even in pulling from the entire history of literature to cite other examples of long titles, none of them were eight words long. Well, uh, the, uh, the, the long and short of it is like I, I knew what title the editor wanted. And so I cut her off in the past with something that I wanted. And I think she thought I was going to fight on the original title. But when I came back with the title that, that I think is actually, I think it's better than my original title. And, wow. And, 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 but like, I think it's, you know, part of it is because uh, like it was my idea. Yeah. <laughs> Which is part of uh, the cult thing I want to talk about today. So I was thinking about cults and storytelling. Um, like, uh, okay, let me, let me set it up like this way. Like when I was in college in uh, South Bend in the early nineties, I would uh, drive with my friends to Chicago to see bands at the Metro or the Lounge Acts or whatever. And I remember one time a stranger on the street handed me a pamphlet for uh, Zendik Farms. You ever hear of Zendik Farms? No, I have not. Okay, this pamphlet had like a creepy 1970s graphic design aesthetic. I didn't like it. I mean, that's kind of a theme today, isn't it? Uh, but I put it in my pocket. I ended up reading it a few days later. And this, seeing this pamphlet was to entice people to come live on a communal farm, be artists and free spirits and whatever. And even mm-hmm. then, I wasn't completely stupid. I knew I was being recruited to be in a cult. But even though I knew that, I was still kind of intrigued. Like, I thought, this may be an interesting life experience. Like, if I'm smart about it. Because like, I already knew it was a cult going in. So maybe if I could game it out, to be strategic about being a cult member, 
Like I could get all the benefits of like free love and living on a farm for a summer, <laughs> but like I didn't have to participate in a mass suicide or ritualistically kill a baby or anything. Did you, uh, did you ever see Wild Wild Country? No, no. Oh, you got to watch Wild Wild Country, man. <laughs> it's all about, uh, all about 70s cults. Oh, so I, I didn't join the cult, but I still uh-huh. think I could have totally nailed it. <laughs> so, have you had experience with cults? Like, well, it's funny. At one point, I I was visiting my old ex girlfriend in Portland, Oregon, and we were walking around, and we passed a Scientology uh, we passed a Scientology guy, you uh-huh. know, at his table outside the Scientology Center, saying, "Come on in, get you know, get your thetans tested." And I was like, "All right, we ought to totally do it, you know, like we ought, that would be." awesome that would be hilarious to actually you know let the scientology people make their pitch to us and she was like are you insane no i'm not gonna do that but uh yeah no i uh i mean i'm certainly you know i think we're gonna get to the notion of conspiracies and i certainly am you know like someone who is pretty sympathetic to a lot of conspiracy theories you know actual cults no not at all because i'm much as i thought it'd be funny to listen to scientology or dianetics or whatever uh no i've always had an extreme aversion to any sort of organization like that i actually i wasn't going to mention my experiences with scientology but like when i was in college when i was working as a lifeguard i remember there was like a scientology kind of like storefront it said like free personality testing and i went in and i did it um <laughs> And, and, and like it, and they berate you, like they 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 really try to like tell you that you're a piece of shit, um, so that you sign up. Um, and I'll get into that and like these various methods. And, but I, I remember when I went in, I was just like, they had me like hold like you know their e meter or whatever, you know that like you know sure. it, 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 the, the little needle goes back and forth. But I was a physics major. I was like, this is a galvanometer. Like this is just. This is no different. It's just like it, it, the, it, the the way this needle swings back and forth is meaningless. Like I, I can see how it works, um, and they were they were they were not happy with me. In fact, <laughs> I remember at the end they said they they gave me an immediate response. They said I, I don't remember much about that day, but they said uh, you would not make a good employee. Was there <laughs> was there damning indictment of me? Uh, um, so wait, you were applying for a job? No, I no, no, no. It was, it was like in their test. Like they say, they said various ways which I was bad, and one of the ways which I was bad is like you would not make a good employee, which no. is true. And, I've been fired. And you never have. Jobs. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, so I bring this up. Okay, I bring all this up because you know we li- like we were talking about before. We live in this era of brainwashing and cult-like behavior, right? Like Trump supporters and QAnon. Sure. And I was thinking, why do people join cults? What makes them stay in, even if it's not in their interest? Why do they allow it to take over their lives and cut themselves off from their families, even die for it? And I remember that word Zendik. So I looked it up and apparently Zendik Farms was a real cult. It doesn't exist anymore, but there are some websites of recovering Zendik cultists that made for interesting reading. So I spent a while reading about the cults online. I noticed there's a common structure to how cults recruit people and suck them in and keep them in the cult. I thought maybe this could be useful information for us as storytellers, since after all, we storytellers too are trying to find ways to recruit an audience and suck them in and keep them in the worlds we create, right? Right. Right. So if you can't beat them, join them. Like, say what you will about cults. They get results. Like, Zendik Farms lasted for decades. We can think about Heaven's Gate, Jonestown, because in a way, cults are just extreme manifestations of sorts of group identification or intense human bonding that we experience all the time. Like, in one way or another, whether it's multi-level marketing or being in an improv group or a tech startup or a music scene, a lot of social formations share at least some family resemblances to cults. 
These are just basic rules of how people come together effectively. Looking back on my life, I could pick out some chapters which I was involved with the group, having group experiences that are congruent with versions of cult behavior. What I'm thinking of, some of the most popular books and movies use similar methods that cults use to suck the reader in and keep him in that world. And maybe we as storytellers can learn those lessons and apply them to our own stories because who wouldn't want to have a cult-like sway over their audience? So I think in this secrets of story, this might be the ultimate secret that we've found, right? So uh, I figured somebody must have thought of this before me. So I went to online to see if there's anybody else to talk about this connection between storytelling and cults. And I found an interesting YouTube video about the movie Midsommar. Have you seen Midsommar? I have not. Oh, Matt. Oh, that's too bad. It's so good. Um, you should have had me watch it for today's uh, podcast. I just assumed you had because I, I – no, I shouldn't have. I mean, of course, if there's a foolish thing, you're going to do it. Uh, um, the, 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 I thought you knew all the good stuff. Like you, you kept up on shit. Is it the kind of thing that you don't like because you don't like cults? No, I always meant to see it. I just never did. Oh, okay. So anyway, this video is by a guy named Nathan Wellman. He has a channel called Acolytes of Horror. The name of the video is How Midsommar Brainwashes You. Here's the thing. I'm going to spoil it. Um, yeah, go ahead and spoil Okay, so it's really good. It's only a half an hour long. And it talks about how Midsommar is not only about brainwashing. You, you know, the movie is not only about brainwashing Danny, the her heroine, but it's also about how we, how the audience gets brainwashed too. Because from looking online, so at the end of the movie, the cult has killed all of her friends that came with her to this place. And she's like kind of raised to this high level. Um, but like but the audience gets brainwashed because from looking online, it seems a lot of the audience interprets the ending of this movie as a happy ending. Uh, whereas the cult has killed all of her friends and she's made her complicit in the murders, but it's not even clear how long Danny will survive at their hands. Yet at the end, she gives this creepy smile. And a lot of people, at least online, had this reaction of like, you go girl, you're bad boyfriend and all your <laughs> friends got murdered. And you know what? They had it coming. It takes a lot of craft for a director or a movie maker or whatever to get the audience to yas queen murder. Um, but this YouTuber goes step-by-step in step how that's accomplished. Uh, I thought yeah. some of those steps could be generalized in the case of not just that story, not just Midsommar, but many stories, especially the kind of stories that inspire cult-like devotion. So what do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so broadly, what do cults have that's in common with stories? They both take up some apparently random person and probably establish that they're important. Both cults and stories do this. Open up to them a broader world in which there's a place for that person where they actually matter, where their actions mean something, a world in which hitherto unknown depths of experiences and pleasures are available to them. And then, and this is a cult moment, but it may also be the crucial moment to establishing something with cultish appeal, abuse them into submission or some kind of breakthrough point. They, they do it both to the character, but they also do it to the audience. I'm kind of fumbling. So you're saying that stories do this to its hero, that a story does this to its hero and also does this to its audience. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think something that that eventually attains cult-like I, I, iconic status. I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if this is true, but I have an intuition this might be true. I want to explore the idea with you. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. uh, um, yep. So um, I feel the most important thing to keep in mind is although people tend to join cults or read its stories for many reasons, one of the most important is to establish or rediscover a sense of purpose alongside a community of fellow seekers. Like sometimes this rediscovery happens to the hero of the book and the reader vicariously takes part in that journey. But sometimes, or even at the same time, the very reading of the book initiates the reader into a community of fellow seekers who can be manip manipulated both in text and in real life to become devoted to that story. I don't need to remind you that the fan bases of Star Trek, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Harry Potter, Star Wars, even things like Ender's Game, other stories have devoted fan bases who, if they're not quite cults, 
some of their behavior can be described as cult adjacent. And I assume most of the people who listen to this podcast are storytellers. Maybe some of them want to become next George Lucas or J.K. Rowling or Douglas Adams. So how do we use the techniques of cult indoctrination and brainwashing to make our stories more effective, to suck the hero and the audience into our world and keep them there? This might be some dark magic that we're playing with, but I think that, Matt, you and I can do it. We can do it. You know, I, I saw online someone was like, someone was like, oh, you know, they posted a Facebook meme or something going like, you know, Harry Potter fans. Oh, I can't believe that J.K. Rowling said those things. Oh, we can't like her anymore. Oh, we feel so betrayed. Ender's Games fans. Now you know how we feel. And <laughs> added on to it, Marion Zimmer Bradley fans. You have no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, uh, and almost it's kind of like part, it might be part of the ritual, the ritualized dethroning of the Magus which I don't go into here. So just talk about how people get sucked in, but maybe that's a necessary thing that has to happen is either the, the Magus, the creator, the king of the cult dies young, like Douglas Adams. You know, uh -huh. He was 48 years old. He's my age essentially, or, um, or they must be dethroned. Um, yeah. it's it, same thing happened to George Lucas. He put out like those fan, you know, those prequels and he was completely dethroned. Um, yeah. so, um, that, but that's, that's a deeper, bigger thing that goes beyond the scope of what I want to talk about today. So what are the broad outlines of how cults find, recruit, and trap their devotees? There's a psychiatrist named Robert J. Lifton. He studied prisoners of the Korean War and Chinese war camps. He identified 10 steps of brainwashing, to, how to break down the self, introduce the possibility of salvation, and rebuild the self in a new form that the brainwasher wants. Here are the steps. One, assault on identity. Two, induce guilt. Three, cause self-betrayal. Four, push to the breaking point. Five, offer leniency. Six, induce a compulsion to confess. Seven, channel the guilt. Eight, release the guilt. Nine, progress and harmony. Ten, final confession and rebirth. Now, these steps may not be totally identical to the various story structures that we've studied already in this podcast, whether it's like Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey or Dan Harmon's Story Circle or Lord Raglan's Rise and Fall narrative we talked about in episode eight and others, but it does have certain family resemblances to them, which it does. Me. Yeah. So what I did is I read up on cults. Uh, I really, I really researched for this episode. <laughs> uh, um, and I kind of combined a bunch of different schemes for cult formation or brainwashing and made my own list of points that splits the difference between brainwashing and storytelling. And I think okay. I've identified, if not a new structure, then maybe a new perspective or a strategy or theory for hooking readers. Shall we go through mm -hmm. it? Yes, let's do it. All right. So and like as we go through this, like I've got these I, I've kind of just been working on this for the past four or five days. But if you have any thoughts about it, just please just jump right in wherever you're okay. So it's a yep. 12 step program. And there's the the 12 steps broadly break down into four sections. Like the first section is recruit the target, the second section is break down the target's identity, three, exhaust the target with stress, and four, worship with the target in full communion. By target, here I mean both the hero of the story, but also the reader is a possible cult recruit. So, okay, yeah. here's the first two steps, um, which are to recruit the target. Step one, find a vulnerable target. Um, most people who end up in cults were recruited during a particularly fraught time in their life. They're under stress. They're isolated. They're emotionally vulnerable. They have tenuous or no family connections. They're living in adverse, they're living in adverse uh, socioeconomic conditions. Maybe they're in between identities. Maybe they're seeking alternative ways of living or open to it. So it makes sense that brainwashing particularly works when the target is young. You yeah. sometimes hear people say, this book saved my life, or this band saved my life. 
when people are young, but you never hear a middle-aged person say about something they recently read, this book saved my life. Um, right. Like someone handed me that cult pamphlet when I was a confused looking 19 year old in the big city outside a punk show. I don't get off of those pamphlets now. Cults know how to pick their targets. So online, I found these seven properties of people who are brainwashable. Maybe I'm thinking these qualities can also be read as the seven properties of the ideal reader or audience who can be activated to have a cult-like devotion to your work. All right. So it's these or properties. Or the ideal hero. Oh, yeah. Or the ideal hero. So one. But here's the thing. This might not map precisely on to you know, our best practices so far. Um, but So I think, I think the whole point that I'm making today is kind of more approximate. But I think there's some wisdom to be taken out of it, even if it doesn't geometrically map well, out can, perfectly everywhere. It doesn't have to map onto it. It can be an alternate theory. It doesn't yeah. have to be. It doesn't have to approximate our current theories. So seven properties of people who are brainwashable. One, dependency. They have an intense desire to belong, stemming from a lack of self-confidence. Well, I mean, it's no secret that some bookworms are shy and lonely and are looking for their tribe. So that's something that a reader might have. Uh, two, unassertiveness a reluctance to say no or question authority, or at least you know pick an authority and don't question them, which is great because you want the author to be the authority. Uh, three. I would say that is not a good not a good quality of a hero. Yeah, and the yeah. book I'm writing right now, I say that heroes should be assertive. But yes, go on. Right. So three, gullibility, a tendency to believe what someone says without really thinking about it. And we really need that capacity in a fiction reader, I mean, at least at some level, because yes. they have to believe what we're saying. Um, Four, a low tolerance for uncertainty. They need to have any question answered immediately in black and white terms. If you're wondering how sometimes scientists get lured into cults, this might be a clue. Uh, but you also see this in fans who get so into the fictional world and get upset when there are subtleties or shades of gray. Like the way that I would get furious when I was a kid if uh, my aunt, my clueless aunt, would buy me a Star Trek toy and not a Star <laughs> Wars toy. Like, Hey, hey, Jamie, it's a, it's a Star Wars robot. It's not Star Wars. It's Star Wars that is a robot. No, it's, it's, a, it's a 3CPO. It's C3PO. Oh, my God. You know, so um, I, I can see that. Uh, number five, disillusionment with the status quo, a feeling of marginalization within one's own culture and a desire to see that culture change. Maybe that's why they might be open to your new culture, your new book, your new story, your new movie that you're peddling because they don't see themselves in the culture. Uh, six, naive idealism, a blind belief that lots of people are good. And seven, a desire for spiritual meaning, a need to believe that life has a higher purpose. And books and stories often try to provide some kind of meaning like this, or at least the good ones do, right? Yep. So all seven of these are more or less neutral qualities that can be transmuted into dark versions, like we see with Trumpist dead-enders or QAnon people. Like intense desire to belong is tribalism, reluctance to question authority is blind obedience to authoritarianism, desire for spiritual meaning can turn into like Vanakian conspiracy mongering. And certainly heroes like Harry Potter or Luke Skywalker or Arthur Dent or Alice in Wonderland have some of these properties, not all, but not all heroes, but certainly a high proportion. But it's not just this hero I'm talking about. I would argue all seven of these properties are things that are in higher proportion among fiction readers. So oh, maybe... Sure. I, I mean, I'm speaking maybe tongue-in-cheek here. It makes sense for us. If we're going to write a book we want to be successful, we should write for the dependent, unassertive, gullible, black-and-white-thinking, <laughs> frustrated, naive, spiritual seeker. Sure. Because a lot those are the folks who are going to be the most into your book and maybe become a fierce advocate for it and evangelize for it. So let's, let's cater to those people's needs. 
So th this is very Machiavellian way of approaching writing. And I don't think you could even go very far writing this in such a calculated way. But as a thought experiment, isn't it fun to kind of explore this? Yeah. You know, it's funny. My my one of my main associations with cults is that I've been helping a writer develop a script. You know, sometimes writers will hire me to give them notes on a script, and then they'll they'll get sort of addicted to it, and they'll give me the same script for notes like three or four times. Uh, and there, I've been working with one writer on several drafts of a cult script, and like you know, the guy's in a cult, and his sister is trying to get him out of the cult. And there was someone else in the cult who was abused as a child, and I said. It's got to be your hero who is abused as a child, because mm -hmm. if your hero's sister is trying to get him out of the cult, then and the hero is there because he was abused as a child, then he can throw that back in his sister's face, and then she's got her own stuff to deal with. He's got his stuff to deal with. It would explain why he was in this fragile state. It would go so much to explain his motivation. It would go so much to make us believe Karen and Beth. And he took that note and he ran with it. Ah, see, so you made him more like somebody who's of those seven. Uh, of, Very of, much. Yeah. You know, before becoming a nerd became mainstream, like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and Hitchcock's Guide to the Galaxy appealed to people like me, like socially disconnected and slightly demented nerds who didn't yes. have any friends or social life. And you've said similar things in previous podcasts. So these oh, sure. nerds are primed to pour a lot of emotional energy into your story because that energy has nowhere else to go. And in fact, they can gain a social life through your story, a way that you could socialize with other nerds through sci-fi conventions or, you know, if you say Mithrandir, that person knows you're talking about Gandalf. You know, there's a secret language. There's a secret network of references that binds people closer. More about this later. But the kind of folks who sign up for this nonsense need to be needy starting out, right? Yeah. So, okay, so that's step one. So step two, invite the target to an innocuous event. Um, so if you're a cult recruiter for Scientology, you don't approach people in the street and inform them that Lord Xenu, the dictator of the Galactic Confederacy, brought billions of his people to Earth and blew them up with hydrogen bombs near volcanoes that the ghosts of those creatures, the Thetans, adhere to humans and cause harm. No. You say, come to our leadership seminar. Um, yep. Another cult recruiter might be like, come to this poetry reading, come to this rock show, come to this party, whatever. Cult recruiters don't start with a hard sell. They ease you in with an invitation to a seemingly innocuous event. So what does this teach us as storytellers? You've got to meet not only the hero, but also the audience, where they are, and work from there. Now, I know that the first few scenes of a movie or a book might be super spectacular or intense or extreme. We talk about that in the Holy Moment episode in episode 22. But I think as soon as possible, after that attention-grabbing, boundary-pushing, spectacular beginning, you've got to ground the story in everyday events of everyday people in this world, and then offer them an innocuous invitation to change their life. The Kitchener's Guide to the Galaxy starts with an extreme first chapter. tells us, oh, God is dead. There's advanced alien life all over the galaxy. It doesn't even care about us. But very quickly after that, we're with Arthur Dent, aggressively ordinary life in England, and he accepts an innocuous invitation from his friend, Ford Prefect, to have drinks at the pub. Harry Potter gets an innocuous invitation to join his school, although we don't actually read it until Hagrid shows up. I mean, Star Wars, R2-D2's truncated message from Princess Leia is an innocuous invitation to do the everyday job of returning a stolen droid to some guy he kind of knows about in the desert, right? Yeah, well, it's a great example of, like, he just sees the first half of the message. So he's like, he's like, well, that's not so bad, you know? Like, <laughs> like yeah. that's a, I think that's a great trick that more writers should use is just have your hero get the first half of the invitation <laughs> and so that way they can they can jump in uh feet first without realizing how, what they're getting into exactly and because from a storytelling point of view the invitation that the hero responds to it can't be i invite you to help me cleanse the world of evil it's too big it has to be smaller more innocuous 
I can't the- believe I'm forgetting another cult I joined. I went to an Amnesty International <laughs> benefit. I've joined a lot. I uh, went to an Amnesty International benefit show in high school, and there was someone who had a little table set up with literature. And one of the things they had was the Communist Manifesto. And I was like, I like was walking by with somebody and then I pointed at the Communist Manifesto going like, that book's awesome. And then the guy said, oh, you think that's awesome, do you? And <laughs> soon I joined the Socialist Workers Party and I would go to these meetings. I was, the only time I ever went to downtown Atlanta from my white enclave in northern Atlanta, Buckhead, and it would be the most bizarre collection of you know, like little old ladies in berets and <laughs> young Hispanic guys and some black Muslims and all sorts of people who were in the who were in the Socialist Workers Party. And uh, so, yeah, that was totally a cult I joined. Right, you're ahead of your time now. Being in, in the DSA is the coolest thing you can do. It is. Uh, um, the uh, so have, yeah. have you seen our mittens? <laughs> yeah, nice. nice. That, that's gonna be one of those references that five years from now people are gonna be like, "What is he talking about?" What's he talking about mittens. <laughs> um, yeah, come to the school, do this ordinary errand, meet your normal friends. But like I said with the Xenu stuff, the innocuous invitation also applies to the reader, the audience. Like, Matt, you, you played Zork, right? I, well, I know, sort of, barely. Wait, what do you mean? Barely? What do you mean? I, I, did, thought... the, I did the books. I did the Zork books. I loved the Zork books. Th- that's so weird because, like, almost nobody knows that those books exist, but everybody knows that the video game exists. Yes, I, I, well, I didn't have a computer, so I, I did the books. Oh, okay. So uh, if if you've ever played the game on the, on the computer, it starts out so, – so Zork, uh, for people who haven't read it or played the game, it's like this uh, – you, you're exploring this vast underground empire. It's a, it's a text-only game, so you type in the commands like kill the troll with the sword, and the computer understands what you mean. You can type in full English sentences, and this is pretty amazing back in the 80s. You know, that mm-hmm. the computer could understand full English sentences and then resp- reply in appropriate prose. Um, so for a long time, Zork had a cult-like following. Zork is all about exploring a vast, fantastical, absurd underground empire. But it doesn't start with you standing at the gates of a vast, fantastical, absurd underground empire. That's too much too soon. It's alienating. Zork starts out, you're in a random field, standing outside a seemingly abandoned, white, normal house. That's the innocuous invitation. It's a bite-sized, manageable, normal thing that's believable to do to sneak into this house and see what's inside. Only once you go into the trap door and you find the into the house and you find the trap door under the rug and you see what's under it, you start and you go through the trap door, you start to get the sense of the underground empire beneath it. But the crucial buying is just going into the house. Something that's normal and comprehensible. That's why the game works. I think it's part of why this game was popular and legendary for so long. It doesn't ask anything greater of you at first than to imagine a white house in the middle of a field. Mm-hmm. Um, n- not long after we enter the house, we're putting these situations of impossible difficulties and unfairness, alternating with beauty and awesomeness and exhilaration. Lots of tiny little secrets for the real heads. This is all very uh, uh, important for cult stuff. But that's not yet. First, we need to hook you. Best way is not through extravagant provinces, promises, but innocuous invitations. It, mm-hmm. That, if accepted, lead to the next step. So uh, before I go on to the next step, is this all making sense so far? Sure. Uh, um, I, I like how, as I go on, we're going to recover more and more of your repressed and buried <laughs> memories of your experiences with cults. Uh, um, I, another one has occurred to me that I'll bring up. Oh, no, no, but, but, tell, tell me now, just as a break before we get to step three. Another another cult that I almost joined, you know, is Acorn. That, you know, ah. like 
I feel like one of the worst things the Obama administration did was not standing up for Acorn when the right destroyed Acorn with a ridiculous conspiracy theory. Because oh, of I, that guy. I mean, John, you don't believe in the good work of Project Veritas? I do not believe in the good work of Project <laughs> Veritas. And but I had almost joined Acorn because, you know, I could tell in the 90s, like these are the real heroes. These are the people who are trying to stand up for this horrible housing thing that is going on that no one is paying attention to. And that is what I would really like to do with my life. I would like to join Acorn. And I interviewed at Acorn and they said, yes, we would like to hire you. And here's what we are willing to pay you. And so I said, great, you know, because I can't do math. I'm terrible at math. So I said, that's fantastic. Great. I'll show up for work on Monday. And I went home and then I did the thing I hate to do. I slowly, painfully started to do some math. And I realized (laughs) that they were paying me a lot less than minimum wage. And that they, and I called them back. I'm like, wait just a second. I just did the math on what you were going to pay me. Like, this is so much less than minimum wage. What are you talking about? And they're like, well, this isn't really a job. This is a cause. And (laughs) you can't, you know, you can't expect to get paid a livable wage. Of course, they were expecting me to just have a trust fund or something. God knows what they thought. But they were like, it's a cause. It's a movement. It's not a job. You can't make a living here. And I just had this freak out, like, going, oh, my God, what have I almost gotten myself into? And I said, no, I'm not coming to work on Monday. And I never showed up because <laughs> I, I needed a job, man. I didn't have a trust fund. I needed uh, I needed to actually earn my living. Luckily, and, you never uh, signed up for the army. I mean, you can't back out of everything that easily. Yeah, it's a good thing. Um, <laughs> I, I can't wait to see what's next from you. So the next two steps. <laughs> oh, we're, we're just going to get darker and darker over the course of the evening. So the next two steps work together to do an assault and identity. So step three, cut them off from outside influences. Now in Zork, as soon as you go through that trap door in the house, the trap door slams shut behind you and you can't go back. You're stuck for now in the great underground empire, isolated and alone. That's what this step is about. You got to make a one-way street such that your hero and the reader at the cult recruit can't go back to ordinary life. Uh, how does this work for the character? Like Luke's home is burnt down. Now the only adult he knows is Ben Kenobi. Uh, Harry Potter gets separated from his family and Hagrid, weirdly and incredibly, doesn't accompany him to the train station. So now Harry- That is in- so strange. Like you watch the movie and the movie makes so much more sense that it's like, Harry, you're a wizard. I'm going to take you to a wizard school right now. People <laughs> totally forget it in the book. Hagrid's like, okay, bye. Go back to live with the Dursleys <laughs> for a month. And he goes, he gets his own room. He's no longer living under the stairs. The Dursleys give him his own room. He lives with the Dursleys for another month, then goes and gets on the train by himself and goes to Hogwarts by himself a month later. People always forget that. And I've read those books to both my kids now. And every time I'm just baffled by that. I think in the movie, Hagrid brings him to the station, but then says, okay, bye. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, it's very strange. But it's necessary to isolate him. Bilbo is taken away from the Shire with the dwarves and Gandalf, taken away from everything he knows and is comfortable with. Arthur Dent's taken into space. He doesn't know what's going on. Ender Wiggin is taken from his family on Earth to battle school in space. Our hero is isolated and reaching out for whatever help he can find from whomever will give it. It's a very vulnerable situation. And it is this here when the target be most receptive to you. When you're trying to lure someone into your cult, what you want to do is take the subject away from their ordinary life. Okay, physically isolate them from friends and family. Censor their intake of newspapers, television, the web. Only the cult identity reality is real. But here's the thing. When you're reading a book or watching a movie, how is that so different? You're literally immobilized. Your yeah. attention is fully absorbed. That's exactly the position we want people to be in when we make the move to brainwash them. So whatever it takes to immobilize them, 
That could be through promises, a splashy beginning, compelling storytelling. You've got to keep them from putting that book down, which is, you know, it's very easy to put the book down. It's asking a lot of somebody to immobilize them and fill their head with our thoughts, with our dreams. So the storyteller needs to approach that like the, frankly, her Herculean task that it is, right? I mean, it's, it's a very big ask to say, I get the privilege to immobilize you. Yeah. Um, so, but this kind of happens naturally with a book or with a movie. You want the subject to be isolated. The social, normal social reference points aren't accessible to them. I guess in brainwashing situation, they use malnutrition or sleep deprivation. But, you know, you could be up late reading all night. I, I frequently do that. Uh, um, so, okay, we've isolated the reader from the world. By writing a beginning so compelling, it causes them to be immobilized, perhaps losing sleep. Our hero is similarly cut off from outside influences. Now, another thing we can do that can not only separate the hero from their world, but also separate the reader from other readers and separate cult candidates from normal world to make it easier to bring them into the cult and keep them there is you want to establish a special lingo, an in-cult yeah. language that either makes up new words or forces new, confusing definitions to commonly used words. At Zendik Farms, they would call the outside world death culture. Um, <laughs> in Harry Potter, they see people who don't get magic are muggles. It's the same strategy. Um, in Scientology, they call people who act contrary to their teachings uh, SPs, suppressive persons. Uh, Star yeah. Wars has all kinds of new words like Jedi and ideas like the Force. Uh, Clockwork Orange, they make up a whole new language. People love it. Uh, yeah. Cults also redefine or use in odd ways commonly understood words. Clear, audit, tech. These have specific meanings in Scientology that are different than our normal usages of those words. Um, yeah. You can use words and phrases to cut off argument. There's no counterattack possible because if you're, if you're in the cult, that is just like those words w would be enough to cut off anything that you would say as a response. You can even have the cult name be something that's unpronounceable so that when you see it written out like that NXVIM cult, what's that? <laughs> Yeah, I think that was brilliant because I still have no idea how to pronounce the name of that cult. Yeah. And, you know, it's the sort of thing where by the time you've said, like, okay, how do you pronounce this and learn how to pronounce it, you're halfway gone. You know, you're yeah. like, okay, I'm, I'm in their world now. Yeah, so only in the no, no. So only those in the no, no. So um, this is starting to bridge to the next point. This cutting off the target from outside influences, both physically and through redefined language, is to get them ready to tell the hero and in a way tell the reader, you are not who you think you are. I think this is an important moment in stories. Um, and maybe this is an important moment of like the book talking, telling, talking to the reader too. I think this is like what books can do or stories can do well. They can make people think maybe I'm a different person than who I am. Um, like uh, this is how you, but it's also how you attack the target sense of self, his identity, his ego, and his belief system. In brainwashing, you eventually have to tear down everything the person thinks. They say, you say, you are not a soldier. You are not a man. You are not a good guy. You can't do it all at once. You don't do it at the outset. You have to position the target such that they will consent to being put under a continuous attack for weeks or months to the point where their target becomes tired and confused. Um, until in the story, you can make so many crazy things happen to your hero that are not accounted for by their worldview, so they become more open to the idea of changing to a new identity. Such a big disruption to their normal world that they become more malleable. When your family runs away to a shack on an island to escape from hundreds of envelopes addressed to you, and then a giant man breaks into that shack, like in Harry Potter, or when you're whisked into its space onto a UFO, then the Earth is destroyed, and a man puts a fish in your ear, then an alien reads you poetry, and you're thrown into space like a hitchhiker's, or whatever. It's such a barrage of events that your normal way of dealing with the world breaks down. You're open to new ways. Maybe you're even open to it when somebody says, you're a wizard, Harry. 
a new identity is offered. Harry is not an ordinary boy. No, you're a wizard. Luke, you're not a farm boy. Obi-Wan tells him he's an heir to the legacy of a great warrior, his father. He tells him all about the weird religion they were into. The world isn't what you think it is. Someone from outside the, the, the reader's life, the hero's ordinary life, approaches him and says, you're not this, you're that. And of course, in a mo- book or a movie or whatever, you're hopefully putting the reader so absolutely in the hero's shoes that for those moments when they're reading the book or whatever, they have forgotten themselves and they're the hero and that's when you can get them. Yeah. Well, I think that I think that yeah, stories are about redefining character. I disagree that you want your hero to have a weak sense of self, like you would want someone entering the cult to have. But you want your hero to have a strong sense of self. But then you want that to be tested, and uh-huh. you want to have like we talked before about if your head, heart, or gut, then the story should then be testing that and throwing you into a world in which you have to learn to be the thing that you're not. Yeah, but Harry and Luke pretty quickly go along with, oh, I'm a wizard? Oh, I'm the heir to a legacy of a warrior? Like, they they must have a pretty, if not weak sense of self, then an incomplete sense of self to be able to swallow this so quickly. Yeah, that's true. Step four, love bomb the target. Dangle the prize in, in front of them. Like once the cult has found an emotionally vulnerable target and isolated them, we then flood that person with validation, compliments, love, fellowship, expressions of esteem, make them feel special and unique. Um, so in Star Wars, Ben is the first person to take Luke seriously. He has info about his dad. He gives him a cool lightsaber. He physically defends Luke from the bad guys at the cantina. Uh, in Harry Potter, Hagrid is the first person to take Harry seriously. He physically defends Harry against Dursleys. He has info about his parents, takes him to cool places like Diagon Alley, picks up cool gear like a wand and owl. A Charlie and the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, within the factory is a world of wonders and secrets. It's just for these very few, very special children. Um, in these stories, there's a person who is the first one to take our hero seriously. I think that's news that you can use right there, you know? Um, sure. Um, also, the story must demonstrate to the reader that it takes the audience members' interests and proclivities seriously. We make it clear whose side we're on. Like the, the story is on the side of the homey but magical Hagrid, homely but magical Hagrids of the world, and it's not on the side of the stiff bourgeois hysterical Dursleys. The story is on the side of the footloose and streetwise Ford Prefect. It's not on the side of the gruesome and bureaucratic Vogons. The scene after Ben explains the Force to Luke. We, the very next scene, we see Vader using the force that was just explained to choke a guy. The audience is naturally on Ben's side. A value is announced. A contrast is made. A judgment is rendered by the story that the reader or the cult target probably finds agreeable to them. So they continue reading or being in the cult. But this love bombing, uh, we, the cult people are trying to create a positive association in your mind between attending this innocuous event and having a good feeling. So you're invited to the next event, you'd be more likely to accept. There's, there's so many, in Harry Potter, so many pleasures and wonders in Diagon Alley, in Platform 9 and 3 quarters, a train wa- ride, the first look at Hogwarts. This is all the school experience that Harry wanted. Uh, same thing in Charlie Chocolate Factory. So this is what the love bombing is leading up to, dangling the prize before the recruit. This is the point at which the cult members say, hey, if you join us, if you hang with us, you can get something special, such as happiness or the answers to the world's mysteries, wealth. Like my brother-in-law, when he was uh, uh, in law school, they would have these events for like the second years or the third years, which they would go to like the house of a, uh, some successful law partner and kind of have a big party there at this swanky house. Like, Look, this could all be yours if you just tow the line and don't right. you know, go work for a nonprofit. Uh, which leads to step five, extract an agreement from the target that they want the prize. There has to come a point in the story, and I guess this is like the opposite of the refusal of the call. 
the hero and the cult target has to explicitly verbally say that they are all in. After yeah. the cultists show the target the prize, they get the target to explicitly and verbally agree they want it. Often, this doesn't seem too difficult. The prize is something everybody would want. You, know, you want to become financially independent, don't you? Don't you want to know the meaning of life? But once you agree, the cultists have a hook on you and they'll use it. They don't, want, they don't tell you what you should want. They get you to articulate it to make you feel like the idea came from you. That way, if you argue against it later, you'll feel like you're arguing with, with yourself. Once you say so it out loud, have, yeah. So we have talked about in previous episodes of this podcast whether heroes should be motivated by self-interest. Yeah. I mean, obviously, one of the things that a cult does is they get you to be motivated by something other than self-interest. Yes. I mean, I think that they, first, they say this is in your self-interest and we are motivating you around self-interest. Only we can give you love. Only we can give you acceptance. Only we can give you power. Right. First, and, it's like, just come to our leadership seminar. You might get some hints. Yeah, come to our leadership seminar. Get you know, serve your own self interest, and then at some point they flip it, <laughs> and yeah. they're like, "Oh, by the way, we actually want to completely destroy your sense of self and have you be totally devoted to a cult leader that will treat you like dirt." That is, I think you're getting at sort of that very tricky moment, and this sort of gets it. I mean, you have rejected the idea of self interest. I haven't rejected it. I just think that there is more to humanity. Well, I think, yeah, they, they do suck you in with self-interest, and we're definitely correct there. Or, or, or like maybe just a you know, naive desire to better oneself. But then once you say it out loud, once you wear the red hat in front of all your neighbors, you know, yeah. once you put up the Trump sign, once you post about it on Facebook, that becomes part of your identity, right? And, yeah. and, and so it, it's, that's why it's important in the book or in the movie that Luke says, not Ben Kenobi says, Ben Kenobi doesn't say, become a Jedi. Luke says, I want to become a Jedi like my father before me. Like, yeah. Ben strings him along until Luke says it himself. In Harry Potter, the sorting hat actively, actively assents to say, I'm not Slytherin, I'm not Slytherin, I want Gryffindor. He says it. It's almost like at the end of 1984, do it to Julia, do it to Julia, don't do it to me. You know what I mean? Uh, right. um, like you have to, it has to come from the, I guess this is news that you can use for a storyteller. You can't have somebody come up to somebody and say, you're the chosen one, go do this awesome quest. It has to be induced in the hero such that they themselves say, it's my idea. I want right. to do it. Because um, that's the cult finesse. Yeah, it's funny. So my brother shared this today, this post. He doesn't say where it's from. But this is someone in QAnon posting today. And he posts, Guys, I feel sick to my stomach. I feel like I woke up in a different world. Watching Biden get sworn in was the most traumatic experience of my life. I kept waiting for the storm. I kept waiting for Trump to march on Washington and arrest the pedophiles, but it never happened. It was just a boring regular day. Meanwhile, Trump flees to Florida. He pardoned rappers. He pardoned Democrats, but no pardons for Assange or the patriots who marched on the Capitol. I really am going to be sick. I gave up my whole family for this man, literally. I spent the past week stockpiling water and preparing for the electricity to go out. Now I just look like a paranoid idiot. I can't believe it. Could it be? Was the whole thing a lie? I took money out of the grocery budget to donate to Q, for God's sake. And now I'm alone. Austin says he never wants to speak to me again. I thought I'd be telling him I told you so by now. Maybe Sarah will let me see my son again. I don't even know anymore. Oh, it's so sad. Isn't that sad? <laughs> um, I mean, actually, you know, I I'm beyond feeling like, oh, he totally got owned. I mean, that's just sad. No, no, it's genuinely sad. And I mean, like, as people pointed out, like, I mean, if you genuinely believed that there was a pedophile cult, then this was the exact right way to act. Right. Yeah. This right. was, but people do, people do 
give everything up. And I think that that is switching, flipping. I think that that's sort of what we're getting at is this idea of flipping your self-interest on its head and having your hero pursue their self-interest and then end up sort of pursuing the opposite, which often becomes the case in a hero it's in a heroic way you know it's like han solo realizing that he should give up his money to come back and fight for the rebellion but giving up your this poor QAnon guy giving up his grocery money and making it so that seemingly his wife has said he'll never be allowed to see his son again in pursuit of q i mean but here's the thing i mean it's right in like jesus said if you want to be perfect go sell your possessions give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come follow me right so in Star Wars, Luke's home is literally burned down, and he what's the first thing he does? He sells his landspeeder, his landspeeder, and gives the money to this weird old man he just met that day for his mission. Imagine yep. your home burns down. The first thing you do is sell your car and go off with a man you just met that day. Uh, um, like in Harry Potter, Harry makes this decision that causes the Dursleys to ditch him at the train station. He's taken to the bank by Hagrid. He has this money. He immediately has to spend it on what Hogwarts or Hagrid tells him to. And then Harry also throws around his money with Ron at the sweets trolley. I'll take the lot. Um, Maybe in part of this structure, heroes should spend, spend, spend money like drunken sailors at, you know, right there. To spend without stint is liberatory. There's something in the same way that we enjoy reading about people enjoying food. I I think we also enjoy reading about people spending money. Right. Yes, Uh, I I agree. uh, um, So, but I, I think these are, like, although these are foolish things to do in real life, uh, and we might end up like, like this QAnon guy if we did it, these are things that the hero should do. And these are emotions we want to elicit in the reader, right? So, yes. Okay, so now that we've recruited the target and caused them to declare allegiance to their new identity, we have to exhaust the target with stress. That's the next couple steps. Step six is shut down dissent by threatening to withhold the prize, iterating between carrot and stick. So these are the second act adventures which the stakes what could be gained, what could be lost, get higher and higher. Is Harry truly cut out to be a wizard? Is he going to get expelled or is he going to be fail? Is Luke truly cut out to be the space adventurer he wants to be and live up to his legacy? The love bombing is over. Now here comes the hard sell. The hero and the cult target are pushed out of their comfort zone. They're urged to do things they might rather not. Like like in a cult, devote time, more time to the group, pay for the pricey programs or study materials, adopt more extreme beliefs, even become a recruiter themselves. In an adventure, um, this is, I guess, where the the hero is adapting to the new environment. This is the easy way, right? But having adventures that are difficult, but as you say in your book, like racking up some easy wins, right? Right. Um, Like Harry is studying all the time. Harry's up and down. But we're kind of exhausting them, though, right? We're kind of like putting putting them through something very uh, strenuous um, that has a lot of ups and downs that are kind of very tonic to experience. In a cult, the target protests or shows resistance. At this point, the cult leaders can just say, you'll never attain the prize if you keep up that kind of attitude. There's a constant threat of death for Luke or expulsion or failure for Harry that motivates him that way. But So this is when the cult alternates between treating the target with abuse and with love. Because we're scared. When we're scared, we don't run away. We run to someone to whom we feel attached, but there's nobody you're attached to. They're isolated. We're keeping the target off balance. Um, So that's what's happening with the hero. What does this do with the reader? As a storyteller, I think this is an interesting point. You've already hooked them with the exoteric, attractive stuff. Now, this is a time that we dip a little bit into the esoteric stuff. This is when you say, learn the rules of Quidditch. We wouldn't have tolerated anything so technical and dorky earlier in the book, but as soon as the initial hooks are in, the target and the reader must be assured that there's indeed esoteric stuff to this cult or story. 
we feel that we see the tip of the iceberg, we have to feel that there's all this stuff underneath the surface that lends it credibility. There's a lot of like non-paying off detail at the beginning of Star Wars, like Luke talking about, oh, I could drop you off at Anchorhead, then you can get a transport to Moss Eisley, but you feel like it's like a bigger world or Harry Potter, like talking about people like Daedalus, Diggler, Sirius Black in the first couple chapters that have nothing to do with anything. But so you hook them with the goes down easily stuff, that's necessary. But it's also necessary to provide difficult stuff to stymie and fascinate people once they're in. Eventually, and at the highest levels, these should take the form of contradictions that are nevertheless asserted to be true. And acolytes can spend all their time and mental energy in trying to reconcile impossibilities in more and more elaborate and therefore satisfying ways, like the doctrine of the Trinity, or retconning inconsistent events in later movies into earlier ones, or in improv, trying to follow all of their fucking contradictory rules, or in Zork, solving the most recondite problems going to the most wayward locations. In Lord of the Rings, you know that there's maps and languages you could look into. Like You can go read the fucking Silmarillion. In Star Wars, there's no end of rabbit holes and stuff you can go down. There's nothing, this is my point, mission statement of my life. There's nothing the human mind hates more than geometry. Like cut and dried, proven information that's easily understood, we are revolted by it. And the only way we're going to study it is if we're forced to in school. But we actively seek out conspiracy theories, even though we know they're not true, possibly because they're not true. The human mind doesn't want to be given a golden truth. It wants to shuttle back and forth between two or more incompatible truths that nevertheless it's obliged to reconcile. If you want to start a religion that lasts, don't base it on something rational and consistent and coherent. Make it incoherent in such a way that the subject must be forced to say that both A and not A are true. Then their brain enjoys exhausting itself, shuttling between these irreconcilable propositions, trying again and again to construct some worldview that could possibly hold them both, or perform the mental gymnastics to keep them both alive at once. That keeps the idea alive in one's mind in a way that the Pythagorean theorem can't. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, well, certainly the first two sentences of the Bible contradict each other. And it's like, well, wait, which day did he do what on? Because you just changed your story in the first two sentences of the Bible. And, and I'm saying that's a feature, not a bug. It's a feature, not a bug. In the, the Old Testament, they took four different versions and they intercut them into one story that now makes no sense. In the New Testament, they took four different versions and they didn't even bother to intercut them. And so you get these four different stories of the life of Jesus, which do not jibe with each other and constantly contradict each other. It's like, wait, did they go to Egypt or did they not go to Egypt or whatever? I think that I was never a big religion guy. You know, that's one reason why I was like, how can you people believe in this religion stuff with the first two sentences of this book contradict each other? But yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly a big part of the appeal, I think. And certainly I would say with these stories, these stories are tremendously weird, are tremendously messy. I just started reading my daughter, Lord of the Rings tonight. We read The Hobbit. Uh, we read The Hobbit, and then we were going to go and read Lord of the Rings, but I wanted to break. So I read her my book. I read her The Secrets of Story, which uh, <laughs> which she, uh, she enjoyed very much. And uh, now we're going back and reading Lord of the Rings. And I was like, you know, I was like, okay, an introduction of how I wrote this book. Like, okay, we can skip this. Then it's like an introductory word about hobbits. I'm like, oh, we can skip this. Then it's like a word about the English language. I'm like, okay, we can skip this. <laughs> and finally... We uh we had uh, we had to keep skipping ahead until we got to the actual story. You were wise to skip that. Yes, but but I think it's necessary for it to have become a popular as it is. That there has to be. It's clear that there's additional information that is there for the real heads. You know. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and I think that's a huge part of the popularity of these things. And so I think you agree with me. I mean, in my long-winded way, I think I, I've I've brought you around to this point of view. People love contradiction. They love unnecessary complication. Yeah, certainly.
Um, so, so step seven is you arouse guilt in the target and lead them to self-betrayal. Well, here's the thing. Let me go ahead and say, like, I think that's one reason why Star Wars is so much more popular than like the never ending story, Labyrinth or Willow or these other things from the 80s that did not catch on, I think had simpler backstories. I think that they were these, well, I'm going to get letters. <laughs> we're <laughs> going to get people complaining who are in love with those stories. But but they can't deny that Star Wars is more popular and it had more. But, but I just don't think, I just think Star Wars is so weird. And I think mm-hmm. that Star Wars just has a weirdness that, that Willow didn't have. And uh-huh. that you just, you just get so lost in Star Wars. You get so weirded out by Star Wars. So yeah, I agree. So, um, so, okay, so good. Step seven, arouse guilt in the target and lead them to self-betrayal. You definitely need to make the reader suffer. The reader wants to suffer. They want to be punished, but they don't want it right away. If you make them suffer at the beginning of the book by deliberately boring them or giving them something that's so extreme or gross, it's repulsive, they won't buy it. But it is the case, that, for instance, that by book five of Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling punishes the reader by giving us literally 150 pages of them cleaning an apartment, and those little piggies <laughs> eat it up. Uh, um, those little piggies love it. Uh, um, so by having part of the story, it's literally hard to get through, but it punishes you every step of the way. That binds the audience closer to them because they had to pay a price to get through it. In, in Lord of the Rings, everyone complains there's too much description, but that's the punishment the reader craves. Uh, and Name other books from that era that are even a fraction as popular now. Uh, nobody reads James Joyce's Ulysses and says, oh, that was all right. Nobody has a lukewarm reaction. You either say, that was unreadable, I couldn't get through it, or they're a Joyce fanatic because they suffered through it. And that suffering has to be made worth something. Uh, <laughs> so uh, like, I remember my, my friend Philip, he's a music editor of The Reader, the Chicago Reader. He, the way he would talk about music would always amuse me so much because he would all be like, Oh, that band is so great. It's so punishing. It's almost unendurable. <laughs> and that's like how he would say he loves something. So once the reader is hooked, not before, but after they're hooked, at some point after, you, they want to be punished, and that will bind them closer to you. And so that's what you do to the reader. In terms of what the character so, or the cult member, you have to convince the target that they're bad. Uh, have the hero do something that might be construed as bad. Maybe the reader is called out as bad. Uh, the, um, this is a, a time of vulnerability, which you create an overwhelming sense of guilt in the target. You, in the cult, you repeatedly and mercilessly attack the target for any sin the target has committed, large or small. You criticize the target. You have these struggle sessions. Um, this is, so Harry goes the to Hogwarts. spiritual crisis, this would right. be in my but, book. But, but, but it's a little bit before that, because this is like Harry goes to Hogwarts, right? And he's in over his head. He has no idea how anything works. You know, everything has to be explained to him. He's like bad in the sense of being ignorant. Like, Luke goes into space, he gets deep into trouble, he's in over his head. Like, Hansel, watch your mouth, kid, you find yourself floating home. This is a hard work. But at the same time, this is a marvelous world you can be part of if only you give in. You're a baby. Like, Chewbacca tries to choke Luke when he has a good idea. Le- Leia says, <laughs> aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? In The Hobbit and Alice in Wonderland and Hitchcock's Guide to the Galaxy, the adventure has started in earnest, and the hero has even eked out a few victories, but they're surrounded by insulting people who are telling them over and over again that they're a piece of shit and they're wrong. Um, you're getting these victories, but you're also being insulted and underestimated and told you're wrong all the time, which is the same fucking thing that happens in a cult. And, so that, and that leads to the moment of self-betrayal. In a cult, you get the, the prisoners to a point where they successfully be made to feel so guilty, they come to blame themselves for their own incarceration. You know? They say, oh, I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm a, a, a war criminal. You know? Cult leaders shame their recruits. It makes the recruits feel vulnerable or susceptible to further manipulation. 
it guilt trips people into getting more involved in the group. The target has to agree with the agent that they are bad. So I think this is when we have this is when the fun second act adventures start to go wrong. You right. need the events to break down so your hero they feel that truly in over their head that they are not equal to this task desperation. The snake gets Luke in the trash compactor, and he's gone. For a minute, we think, oh, God, Luke died. Or a couple of minutes later, like, Ben Kenobi dies. It's like, maybe, you know, or Harry and Ron and Hermione, like, fight the troll. It looks like they're going to die. And even after they defeat it, it looks like they're going to be expelled. Or he goes to the mirror of Arisette every night to look at his parents. Dumbledore chastises him. This natural thing to do. Probably deliberately put it out to tempt him, like a cult leader would. Um, he also gets caught out at night after helping with the dragon and put in detention. In all these cases, you have this feeling like, oh, wait, maybe this won't have a happy ending after all. So all this has the effect of step eight, bring the target to the breaking point. Who am I? Where am I? What am I supposed to do? Your identity's in crisis. Uh, you're having this breakdown because you're, you're fucking up so badly. Ben Kenobi dies and Luke is down about it. I can't believe he's gone. Harry goes right. to the mirror of Arisen and gets lost in it. Dumbledore finds him and gives him some philosophy. This is when we start to convert from their previous belief system to the new belief system in earnest. I think this is where in your scheme, we go from the easy way and we're starting to go to the hard way, um, as you say in your scheme, right? Because uh, I would say, according to what you've been reading, I would say we've been in the hard way for a while, but okay. Okay, so step nine, offer leniency to the target and clear steps to make things right. You say to the, to, to the target, I can help you. The target is in a state of crisis, so Leia comforts Luke on the Falcon. There's nothing you could have done. The Dumbledore speaks to Harry at the Mirror of Arisen. It's a forgiving moment. Ender Wigan is told, oh, you know, you blew up the whole alien planet, but you couldn't have known. Like, yeah, it's, a, it's a forgiving moment. You know, the, the person isn't chastised for the infraction they've done, and then you're kind of doing this... Com- like, so then through Leia, Luke commits to the rebellion, and he gets his instructions with the rest of the X-Wing pilots. Through Dumbledore, like Harry recommits to school or solving the mystery or whatever. The, the target wants to reciprocate the kindness offered to him after he got broken down and then kind of built back up by their, their handler. Um, and this is, so then you channel your guilt. The real enemy is Voldemort, not my own internal issues, uh, which right. is revealed with the unicorn drinking blood. The real enemy is the Death Star, not my own internal issues. The substitute for your own internal problems is identified and made physical. So that when it is destroyed or defeated, you can trick yourself into thinking that your problems are destroyed or defeated, and the audience can feel that way. And it has to be made specific and physical so that we see it, we know it's happened. It can't be somebody saying, I just had a change of heart. Even in a rom-com, it has to be like, uh, you know, in singles, like he finally says, uh, you know, bless you in the elevator or whatever. You know right. what I mean? It has to be a specific... That was in my book. What's that? That was in my book. I oh, know, because I just read it. Th- there you go. Uh, um, so now the last step, three next last couple steps are worship together, full communion. So step ten is release of guilt through a ritual or significant act. I guess this would be blowing up the Death Star or something like this. Like the target is led to believe the problem isn't me; it's my beliefs. You know, it's so I I'm not bad; it's my beliefs are bad. I have to get this new system. And I think that's when Luke says, "Okay, I'm gonna trust the Force." This is when like uh, Indiana Jones says, "Okay, God is real. I'm gonna close my eyes." You know, they've been broken down. The, the cult of the story has broken down the hero to the point where they're going to do this act that they would not have done in, before. So you have progress and harmony and final confession and rebirth in a new community and identity. Like, I choose good. And so at Harry Potter, you see a final banquet. Everybody's there. Star Wars is a final ceremony. Everybody's there. It has to be a big group scene. Everyone's together. It's a culmination. 
a sacrament, a ritual of togetherness that solves all the heroes and therefore the readers' problems. Because remember those seven qualities of someone who might make a good cult target? Okay, an intense desire to belong. Well, we now see our heroes surrounded by all their allies, respected and celebrated. Number two, a reluctance to question authority. Well, it was by trusting in the correct authority that got them here. Three, a tendency to believe in stuff without thinking about it. Well, that paid off, apparently, because it all turns out to be true. Four, low tolerance for uncertainty. Yes, in no uncertain terms, in black and white, they are definitely 100% the winner. We don't want shades of gray. We want evil defeated and good victorious. Six, disillusion with the status quo. Yes, a new status quo has been established, which you aren't marginalized. Next one, naive idealism. Yes, it turns out that good guys do sometimes come in first. And finally, desire for spiritual meaning. Well, if it's a well-written story, that's part of the climax. Let's see our old discussion on how to write an insanely great ending, that Michael Arndt episode. So now that the readers are initiated into the cult through the hero by proxy, but also entering the community of those who have read the book. And that's my point. Right. Yeah, sure. I think that, you know, you're good at finding other procedures, other lists of steps that end up to turn out to have some connection to writing. And uh, you know, we should do an episode on Jewel Selbo at some point, because uh, I I talk about at one point in an old blog post about how she has a completely different sort of story structure that I thought was brilliant. But I think this is good. I think that it's a little complex where you talk about like the hero going on this and the reader going on this. But <laughs> so I'm, I was shifting back and forth in my mind as you read between like, OK, is is this happening to the reader and is this happening to the hero? And some seem to be happening just to the reader and some seem to be happening just to the hero. But I think it's good. Maybe, maybe this doesn't work for I mean, obviously not for everything. It doesn't work for like, you know, the accidental tourist or whatever in ter <laughs> terms of endearment. I, I'm talking, talking about like things that that actually inspire cult like fervent devotion have these characteristics which are the things that i often come back to anyway i know it's all it's a joke by now i always talk about harry potter and star wars and Raiders of the lost ark or hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy or alice in wonderland but i mean i guess i just have to i mean that, that's who i am let your freak flag fly exactly all the any of these structures are good for is not as like a checklist of like okay you have to do this you have to do that but like if i could give you a different way of thinking about stories a different way to approach it then maybe like some sentence that I said along the way might spark somebody into thinking differently about how they might approach something. And that's all this is for. It's not like a recipe. It's kind of like, oh, isn't it weird that cults operate by similar procedures as stories, especially super popular stories that everybody loves? I think it's good. I think that, like I said, I think one of my main, I think one of the main differences here is that you want a hero, and I would say even you want a reader to have some more pushback that like obviously joining a cult is an evil thing you are talking about a 12-step descent into madness here and <laughs> that is what step 12 but is it, it, but isn't like you know reading a book in a way a kind of voluntary descent into madness you're you're reading about people who never existed uh, things that never happened and you're getting emotionally swayed by it while there's actual people starving only a mile away from you you're not doing anything about it but you're caring about like the love affair of two people who don't even exist i mean it is a kind of madness Hopefully a hero is going to end up in the opposite position of a cult member. Hopefully a hero is going to end up being a stronger person on the inside rather than a cult member who is going to end up being a weaker person on the inside. And hopefully, I would say, the reader is going to end up being a stronger person for having read this book rather than a weaker person for having read this book. I mean, you know, you can certainly watch William Shatner on Saturday Night Live saying, move out of your parents' basements, get a wife. <laughs> but I think that 
even Star Trek fans, even the Star Trek fans who seemingly went over the deep end, people are stronger for reading stories. That I think, I think we should get comfortable with the idea that maybe stories are like nicotine and that they feel great, but they're not necessarily good for you. Like, I, I think that's possible. I disagree. So here's what I thought you were going to come talk about today. I thought you were going to talk about QAnon and this whole idea that why do we believe in conspiracy theories? And, oh, it's because they tell us stories. And is storytelling good? At one point, you pitched this episode to me as, is storytelling good? There's been a lot of talk about conspiracy theories, especially in regard to COVID, and about how, like, oh, they tell us a story. That That's the problem with conspiracy theories is they tell us a story that convinces us. And no one should tell us stories that convince us. And they've been lured in. These people have been lured in with these stories. And so they did a good John Oliver bit about why we believe in conspiracy theories. And I've seen a lot of this stuff on the left about why we believe in conspiracy theories. but like John Oliver, every week on that show is a conspiracy theory, which he then proves. Like the previous week on that show, like the name of the episode had been government surveillance. And it had been all about how government surveillance is and corporate surveillance is this huge plot and they're all working together and they're all secretly sharing the information that they claim they're not sharing. And I'm like, if that's not a conspiracy theory, what is? And the entire John Oliver show is a history of conspiracy theories, which you prove to be true every week. And then suddenly when you're talking about conspiracy theories that you don't believe, like COVID conspiracy theories, then suddenly you're like, oh, well, that's why conspiracy theories are so bad. That's why no one should ever believe in conspiracy theories. And I'm like, if people didn't believe in conspiracy theories, then no one would watch this show because what you do every week <laughs> is you prove that conspiracies are real and you prove that they're true. Yeah. And you're just saying, and I think that this is a huge mistake that people make, is that they say, oh, you know, anything I don't believe is using storytelling and that's an evil thing. And anything I do believe is we're using truth and that's a good thing. John Oliver tells stories every week and he tells stories that are conspiracy stories and that happen to be true. And other people are telling conspiracy stories that happen not to be true. But to say like, oh, you believe in those things because you have a mental problem, which is essentially what he was saying as opposed to believing in every episode of the John Oliver show, which you can believe in without a mental problem, it's just not going to work. For us to just comfortably say, oh, that was conspiracy theory, and we don't believe in those on our side of the fence, everybody is saying that. And that's such an unhelpful thing to say. People are more or less reasoning in a way that's just as valid as anybody else's reasoning. They're just starting from different premises. Yeah. And, and those premises come from the communities that they're from. But yeah, I think that that is, that is what John Oliver is saying is wrong. Is I think he's saying that, that they are engaging in twisted thinking. They are not processing information correctly. And I think he is totally wrong about that. I think that he is just, I think it's, I think it, what really the difference is, is that I think it's a belief in the scientific method. I think is the real thing that separates people these days. I think it is good to believe in conspiracies. It is good to look for conspiracies. I think we are surrounded by conspiracies. Every criminal trial where the person is found guilty, you are proving that there was a conspiracy. It is impossible to commit a crime I'm, without I'm counting, there being some sort of conspiracy. I'm counting down to when you say that jet fuel does not melt steel beams. And jet fuel does not melt steel beams. I feel like I feel like I enjoy watching John Oliver every week because he proves a conspiracy happens every week. Uh -huh. But then you have QAnon. You have this poor guy who may never get to see his son again. And how do we get there and admit that our side believes in conspiracies, that our side is proving conspiracies? He didn't have the good taste to get his conspiracy theories from HBO. Yes, exactly. He was, God knows where he was getting them from. He was getting them from Parler. But uh, the thing is, 
he was getting them in a more organic way than we get ours. We get ours from HBO, which is some corporate-owned entity. He was getting his from his friends who were yeah. passing around homemade memes. So his was actually a more organic. Uh, if, 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 if you were just an alien who was dropped down on Earth, you didn't know anything else about what was going on, you, and you'd say, which, which conspiracy is more likely to be correct? You would say the QAnon one. But of course, there, is, there are people behind QAnon. It is not like something that arose utterly organically. There are people who created it and pushed it and make it happen. I mean, I think it's a matter of how does this conspiracy make me feel? And the conspiracies on John Oliver's show, they don't do what you're saying. They don't indoctrinate you into a cult. You don't feel like you are having the pleasure centers of your brain manipulated by the conspiracy theories that John Oliver proves to be true every week. I mean, when people read a good story, they don't want to feel manipulated. Even though and they are being manipulated, the artist's job is to manipulate them. You are manipulating them, but you are manipulating them, but they do not, you are not trying to indoctrinate them into a cult. I think that even, I just, you know- I spent the whole episode saying that we do. I Right, well, this is what we do on this show is we disagree with each other. All right, so we've had some good discussion here tonight. Do you have anything else to add at the end here, James? You are so lucky that you have a podcast partner who puts so much time and effort into a single episode. You should be thanking me like every day. I do thank you, James. Thank you for all that you bring to this podcast. Okay, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. <laughs> that was I am... perfunctory. That was perfunctory. Uh, I... I I feel like I there is a certain amount of perfunct that you will find in many of my statements. I'm congratulations so much on your new book. I'm so uh, glad you finally got to announce that now that you finally have a title. And uh, I like your new title. I think it's good. Dare to know. Dare to know. See, it rolls right off the tongue. Dare to know. Okay, we will be back soon, probably after my poor book is done. I will see you soon, James. Uh, all right. Go and send no more. Go and send no more. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. Our music is by Hand and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.